And in there we have Olympic track, which is where one target flies away from you at about 110 k's an hour. And you call pull into a microphone and you generally shoot it within 0.3 and 1.2 seconds of that call. So it's a total quick reflex. You don't know which way it's going. So I liken it to you going hunting. You don't know which way that rabbit's going to run. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and you're listening to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes sharing their stories and their transitions out of sport. I'm very excited to share this episode with you. Uh, we haven't had this sport discipline in before, uh, so I'd like to welcome Susie Ballow, as she's known as, uh, an Australian sports shooter. So Susie has gone to two Olympics. She went to the 2004 Athens Summer Olympics and the 2012 Summer Olympics, where in 2004, Susie actually achieved an Olympic gold medal in trap. Uh, Susie has also gone to two Commonwealth Games, first in Manchester in 2002 and then in 2006 for the Commonwealth Games, where she placed bronze in both double trap pairs. In the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, she also received a gold medal in trap pairs. So if all of these terms aren't really familiar to you, uh, we do actually go into a good explanation about what the different disciplines are in shooting. It's something that I wasn't super familiar with going into this episode, but I've learned so much and I I think it would be really cool to try it out sometime. So I really appreciate Susie's time and patience in explaining the different disciplines to me. Susie has now gone on to uh, start her own business. It's called Hitting Targets, Introducing People to Clay Target Shooting. And she's also part of the Gold Medal Ready program for the Australian Institute of Sport, getting athletes ready for Tokyo 2020 or whenever that may be. And the Olympians Unleashed speaker at the Australian Olympic Committee talking to year nines about setting career and sporting goals. So Susie has some incredible advice and I think her experience and some of the lessons that she goes into depth in this episode are really cool. So yeah, let's welcome to the podcast, Susie Bello. Thank you so much for joining. You're very welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Can you tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like and how you actually got into shooting? Yeah, I had a, I had a really good childhood, thanks to my parents, that's for sure. Dad was a Hungarian refugee that came over with his family in 56. And my mum was an assisted passage 10-pound pom that came over as an educated person to Australia to better themselves, find a new life. And so those two really gave us every opportunity we could. And I suppose what I learned from them was that, you know, hard work and taking opportunities does does pay off. Over in uh, Hungary, my grandfather used to clay target shoot and hunt and things like that. And then when the family came over here, when they finally got out of um, Bonigella refugee camp and started, you know, forging a future. They had gun shops and um, things like that and they started play target shooting here. So my dad got into it, my aunties, etc., uncles, and I got introduced to it when I was relatively young, getting taken around the gun clubs. It was just something that I eventually had a go at. Did shooting come naturally to you? Was it something that was in the blood or was it something that actually took like a while for you to get the hang of? I'm pretty lucky. My mum and dad are both sporty. Dad, um, you know, was a 
state level shooter and my mum was a PE teacher who used to play you know high level badminton and a few things and still plays tennis to this day and my brothers and sisters were also sporty so I, I had the basic hand-eye coordination down and just takes a bit of mental focus as well so yeah it came pretty naturally though the first nationals I ever went to for down the line which is a non-olympic discipline I shot five out of 50 and that's like really dreadful I'd only just started but the following year I actually won the ladies national championship so obviously somewhere in there it clicked. somewhere in there you kind of got the hang of it that's really cool I feel like five out of 50 is probably five more than I would get um you'd probably do better than that <laughs> So when did the Olympics become a dream for you? Not till really late on in the piece. Look, I'd played netball, softball. I'd done, you know, the school, state, discus and swimming and all those type things. Um, but it wasn't until I'd moved to Orange after I finished my university degree that I actually went, I'd like to take up the Olympic disciplines. And I kind of fell into it to start with. I just went home to visit my family one weekend and they were shooting Olympic track at the local gun club and it was the zone carnival and I made the zone team there was only three of us there so I was the third lady and then they said I'll oh, come back and you can make the um state team and it was the same three ladies so I made the state team and then I found myself up at Brisbane at the national championships there were lots of ladies up there but I managed to improve a bit and I made it in sixth and finals place and I later found myself overseas that year at my first World Cup event in Brunei and I kind of got into it because one lady was pregnant, one was getting a wisdom teeth out and another was getting married. So I got elevated to the top three. I finished fourth at that world event, which is pretty cool, but it gave me a taste for what could happen. And then I had a good run leading up to the Sydney Olympics. I won the test event, but it still wasn't something I wanted to do was go to the Olympics. I joined after the program was already in place. But a few weeks before the Sydney Olympics, I got the call up to say, come along and be a filler, just make up numbers. So I became the 18th competitor. Can't really call me a competitor though, because I was no name, no country. And I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a volunteer. I was kind of like this no name brand type type thing and I got to compete which was really awesome and my scores they they would have got me in the finals and it was just looking at that board and going no name no country and this awesome score it was then that I went yep I want to be an Olympian and that's when it became a reality to me. Can you tell me a little bit about the different disciplines in shooting so just to kind of understand the scope of like the different disciplines that people compete in? Yeah so I kind of liken uh, play target shooting a bit to motor racing so the down the line that I was talking about that I shot when I was a young girl, you could say that's probably like your V8 supercar. Everybody drives a car and then there's the elite get to go to the top. And then there's uh, sporting clays, which is another discipline, and it's like rally driving and that's walking through the bush and having a shot. And then we get into the Olympic disciplines, which are likened to your Formula One. So it's just take those few elite and, and progress them further. And in there we have Olympic track which is where one target flies away from you at about 110 k's an hour. And you call pull into a microphone and you generally shoot it within 0.3 and 1.2 seconds of that call. So it's a total quick reflex. You don't know which way it's going. So I liken it to you're going hunting. You don't know which way that rabbit's going to run. And then there's Olympic skeet, which you know where the targets are going to come from. They're shot at a lot closer range and they're going a bit slower. 
But to make it more difficult, the gun starts at the shooter's hip. And when they pull pull, it could be a zero to three second delay before they're actually allowed to mount that gun up onto their shoulder. And they can't move that gun until they see the target. And they shoot singles and pairs of that. So those are the two events that are currently in the Olympics. And then we'll also have mixed trap. So I would have loved to have had mixed trap when I was there, like, you know, shooting with Michael Diamond or Adam Bella would have been just awesome. And it's probably where Australia has their biggest medal chances in the shooting. We've got current world champions in, in that event. I think the catch is that you progress through these before you give it a go. And then there was also double trap that I shot as well years ago and that got removed. Thank you for the explanation. I imagine a lot of listeners aren't super familiar with the sport of shooting. I'm interested to know, how competitive is Australia in the sport? When I was competing 2002 Commonwealth Games in Manchester, Australia won pretty much a gold medal in just about every event except for my double trap. We only picked up bronze. It was a learning learning curve for me. But since then, the rest of the world has realised that the effort and the money that can go into one Olympic medal or one Commonwealth medal for one shooter is a better return than, for say, a full team. And it's a bit like combat sports. We're now, Australia's putting a lot into combat sports for exactly that same reason, that it's a lot of individuals and hence a lot of medals instead of a massive team. We're really strong. And I think a couple of the reasons why we are competitive is we're a sporting nation, so hand-eye coordination is just part of it. But we also don't really have an off-season. You can shoot all year in Australia. And we go overseas during our winter, we compete in their summer. So that doesn't give us a down season, whereas the Europeans kind of lock themselves down for three, four months at a time. And the other thing is overseas, the ranges are really high quality and a lot of money spent on them because they have the volume of people through. In Australia, we're training on crazy, you know, archaic traps sometimes, sometimes brilliant facilities like at the Sydney International Shooting Centre. But, you know, I'd go to little gun clubs that have got hand-cocked machines that are all doing different speeds and different things. And that makes me a better competitor because you just got to roll with it and accept the challenges. And I think we are not fussy as well. So I used to travel four hours to train, get a shot, and that was one way. So when I was there, I shot in any weather. Anything it threw at me, I'd be out there in rain, hail, shine, snow, whatever. Whereas in Europe, I think it's just such a big business for them that they get, oh, today I'm, I might not go out. So that really stands Australia apart from the other countries. That's, that's all I can really think of. But we're, we're right up there. Do you have like a preference of what type of gun you shoot with or is there a standardised when you're competing? There's basic rules that's on what a gun is allowed to be but uh it's a bit like cars again so i shoot a brand called a parazzi which is um an italian company they've been around for 60 odd years and they only make competition shotguns some hunting shotguns as well but it's like going and getting a ferrari it's handmade for me it's just beautiful they only turn 2,000 guns out a year and i've been loyal to them because my dad had the first Parazzi's in Australia and he still uses them and they really embraced me as, as part of the family. And both Michael Diamond and I shoot their benchmark, their base model, which is still totally world class. It kind of leads into my next question. What did your training regime and recovery look like as an athlete, so both as a junior and then as you got more senior? 
as a kid, you just attended shoots with your dad and I'd be, you know, playing rip netball or softball. So that kind of took up my time and I'd just go to a shoot on a weekend with dad or my little brother. My brother's a couple of years younger than me and he's a brilliant shot. And I say my dad taught me how to shoot, but my brother taught me how to compete. And that was just family rivalry, you know. He never wanted to be beaten by me and I never wanted to be beaten by him. So that was a good thing. So I really didn't start taking play targets serious until I moved to Orange and I made that first own team. Orange has a play target club, but it doesn't have an Olympic discipline one. And so for 10 years, all throughout my Athens campaign, Manchester campaign, I would be travelling to Sydney or to Canberra to practice. And I was working a full-time job. It's Clay Target's an expensive sport to train. You know, it's around about $200 a day plus expenses on top of that. Yeah, your eyebrows went up. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so it's not a cheap thing when you're, you're bulk training. It's a bit like liking it to feeding a horse. you just got to keep putting the ammo in. And I wouldn't be able to shoot during the week. So on a weekend, on a Friday, I'd leave work as soon as I could, head off to the range in Sydney, have a shot, go stay on a friend's lounge or spare room or floor. And I shared myself around to all my friends. So thank you, friends. You got me to Athens. And um, then I'd shoot practice all day Saturday, save friends again, and then shoot a competition on Sunday. And that was my Sydney-based training. And then I'd try and go and do training, chase competitions everywhere. So we had a really good domestic circuit. So I'd jump in the car on a Friday and head up to, I know, Tari or Ganadar or somewhere like that and attend those little shoots on the little ranges. And it, it taught me to, you know, be really competitive and focused when I was there. But training-wise, if I was going to a major event like the World Championships, I'd take a few extra days off work, head to Sydney or Canberra, and I would do bulk training and then I'd do technical training and then I'd do tapering just because I wasn't someone who could get that bulk in there that other, other athletes could. Eventually, I changed everything around and moved to Sydney for my Delhi and London campaign and I was able to regularly train them and do proper recovery and so on. So it wasn't like just for shooting, quick, get in the car and go back to work. It was more a case of train, take your time to do it and put the put the quality into it. I did pick up on something you said there, and I don't know if I'm jumping the, the gun, terrible pun there. You did mention about working. What's the funding like in something like shooting? It's getting, it's getting better. Uh, I think the big thing that I've seen in my lifetime is that when we have professional women's sport, if I knew I could have been a professional rugby player I probably would have done that instead of got into shooting. Now people have got these, women have got an opportunity to do this. Uh, look, my last Olympic campaign was uh, London 2012 and I wasn't in the elite high performance program. I was running my own business, hitting targets, and I was also doing a, um, a consultancy for the National Invasive Species Cooperative Research Centre. So I was working two, you know, good paying jobs to get me to the Olympics. and. Very little funding. I even paid for my own ammunition and practice at the Olympics. So, you know, swimmers don't put money in the turnstile to go go in the pool, but that was London. So now things have changed. The athletes are actually getting paid like a wage if they're high enough ranked, which is really good. But when you're tr- just trying to do your job to fund your sport, we didn't really have the opportunity to do all the social media things and that people can now. So I think our athletes 
in shooting are now better funded than they used to be. Um, as a figure skater, I can relate to the whole no funding thing. We would be not so much for like Olympic level, but we would be paying for our ice time and then the coaches and the equipment and the flights to the competition. Sometimes the accommodation, just there's a lot of cost involved. So I, I do feel the pain there. As an athlete, you've had some extraordinary achievements. When you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? Are there any like standout achievements for you? Yeah, there's two, and they're my Olympics. So the Athens Olympics, that was, you know, going from Sydney where I was a filler to realising that I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted a name. I wanted a country. I, oh, what I went through to get to that event was uh, pretty horrendous. But what it did was I learned about uh, grit and determination. And on that day, I was so proud of myself for being able to be 100% ready every time I called for that target. It's a bit like being on the starting box of a swimming race where you're in that go moment. And if you miss that start just a little or a sprint up, then it's all over for you. So shooting is that, you know, 125 times plus final. It's that little fraction that, that makes a difference. And so if you're not switched on for that, it's, it's all over. So I was really proud of myself for staying on my process in Athens and just giving it all I could. And obviously, you know, coming out with a gold medal is just brilliant, but I still didn't really know what the Olympics were all about and I learnt pretty quickly. And then the, I missed out on Beijing and then London Olympic. I wanted to make my last Olympics and I was so proud of myself because I had to do it really quite all off my own back type thing. But also, I shot a PB, shot a new national record, broke the old Olympic record, and then had a bad final. And to be able to come away as the working two full-time jobs and in that final, I was the only athlete that wasn't European and wasn't a full-time paid shooter. I was pretty proud of that. So I think the experience I gained in those eight years in between was one was just that magic moment where I knew I was a contender and I had belief, and then the other one was a hard-working athlete that knew that they were a contender and that was you know two really proud moments as an athlete. I think they're really cool. I do have a question that's kind of jumping back a little bit but I am intrigued. How do you practice improving your reflexes? You've either got them or you haven't to start. I suppose um, a lot of cross training but the actual shooting being able to visually acquire that target within that time frame and latch onto it is the hard thing. And there's not really anything that can train you for for that. By that time, you don't actually aim at the target. You just let your eyes latch onto it and then you flow and shoot it. You haven't got time to, to think about it. So just practice, practice, practice at doing that. But then I'd be doing things like making sure that I'd be practicing it in dark light, um, in rain, with slow targets, fast targets, a whole variety. So it was that imperfect training that, that really hones that skill. I want to go on to uh, some of the challenges that you faced as an athlete. So you've already mentioned funding. Were there any like setbacks? Was injury an issue while you were competing? Yeah, I've, um, I've just joined a, a CrossFit gym, one of those crazy things that I've done lately, and um, writing down all my injuries for them and stuff like that. They were like, wow, we thought you'd be a lot more you know your medical history to do these things yeah I think they thought I might have needed crutches <laughs> I have a hypermobile joint so I'm one for tearing things or dislocating or subluxing 
So I went through um, 10 to 20 years I was in the Olympic team scene. Um, I tore my quad, severe partial tearing of my quad, and I was doing a commando course of all things. I was going to ask, is that common in shooting to tear your quad? It's not a shooting injury. These are all outside shooting injuries. (laughs) I've only had probably two shooting injuries. Um, So torn quad, I had to get over a, a hernia that I ended up with just from doing leg presses or whatever. Um, and then probably the ones that were shooting related was I ended up with a syndrome in my thumb called decrovanes, which is a bit like carpal tunnel but of your thumb. And you end up with golfer's elbow and tennis elbow and your arm just literally does not work and you end up with subluxations in your neck. So I had to learn how to open my gun differently. So instead of using my thumb, I had to use the back of my hand, which I still do. And that just made a change, but, oh, that was excruciating. And then probably the one that I did because of shooting was I just made the Athens Olympic, qualified for that, and I'd I'd run home to tell my parents that night about, hey, I made the team, and then my mum and dad sat me down and basically told me that my mum had breast cancer. So that was kind of a shock. Mum's fine, but let's forward a month later and we had a World Cup on in Sydney, so a lead up to the Athens Games, and I had a back pain and a bit of a niggle, so I'd had a massage and physio treatment the night before. That morning I had another massage and another physio treatment. Literally five minutes before I went out for that World Cup, I um, was on the practice layout just doing some basic stretches that I do all the time and kind of have oh, about five kilos of ammo in my pocket, my gun's five kilos, and I kind of just stretch my back out and put the gun down towards my toes. On this occasion, my elbows hit the ground. So I did two discs in my back severely, and um, that day I ended up in Fairfield Hospital where they were going, oh, shotgun victim, shotgun victim, it was just my back. So I couldn't compete anymore, and here I am. I've just made an Olympic team. I've just transferred home to look after my mum and family. And I'm the one who's having to go to the AIS daily to get physio treatment to learn how to walk again and get the disc in line. So I had to go from there where I really had to learn how to walk again, how to shoot again, to six months later winning an Olympic goal. Oh, my God. Uh, slip disc a common injury? Not at all. Just hypermobility for me. Common injuries for shooting would be just overuse things like my veins or bad necks and bad shoulders. <laughs> yeah. The next question I want to go on to is what did your support network look like as an athlete? I was fortunate to have the opportunity to be around success. And we know success breeds success. And an example is that Sydney event. I watched Michael Diamond win a gold medal. I watched Russell Mark kind of lose a gold medal and gain a silver medal. And I learned as much in that as I did in watching Michael win gold. And I grew up with Michael. I trained with both these guys. And so it really gave me the opportunity to go, yeah, I can do this. And so it was, you know, one of those light bulb moments. So I was fortunate to be in a team training with them regularly, competing with them. In Australia, you compete equally with the men generally. So they were kind of mentors in a way. The leading person of shooting influence to me was my coach for the Athens campaign, Greg Chan. And he was just really good at making you think what you needed to think. He put you at ease or tell you the right things at the right time. He was a pretty good mental manager and I can really say that he's someone that helped greatly with my success 
on my campaign. And yeah, I think that was my shooting network, as well as all your shooting colleagues and friends. But then I was based in Orange with a research group. I worked for the Department of Agriculture. And so I had 20 people that were closely knit to seeing me work all week and then disappear on the weekend and then come back. And then my family, brothers, sisters, mums, dad, and all my wonderful friends. I'm just really fortunate that I did a degree that has given me friends throughout Australia. So I'd just pop up at some place in Brisbane, say, and I'd go, hey, let's catch up. I'm coming to stay. And so it was lovely to have these people that were supportive outside the shooting fraternity. But my last campaign, the London campaign, is just that I just met my ex-husband leading up to that. And so he just taken up the Olympic disciplines through me. He was a shooter to start with. And so it was really nice to go on that journey with someone. And he was so keen to shoot, it kind of made me go to the range. And so I, I really appreciate that I had someone to train with and develop with and travel with. So it was really nice. Yeah, that's nice. What did success actually look like for you in the sport and then how you actually define success now as well, if it's changed? Yeah, so success for me personally in the sport was I learnt to set goals and so process goals, performance goals, and then the outcome goals, and then the performance goals, just watching my scores increase over time. One of the big things in the shooting world for me over those 20 years was that we went from being in a national, to make a national team, you just had to beat the other people there. But then later on, they kind of realised that they were sending people overseas that were not competitive against the rest of the world. So then they brought in a benchmark score that you had to had to meet. And it was a tough benchmark score. It was the average score to make a world final. So that's, that's pretty tough. And it changed my whole perspective on shooting because I wasn't just trying to beat the girl next to me on the day. I was trying to beat myself and get that score as well. So... I think being able to, A, turn up and be 100% focused, B, follow my process and C, hit those benchmarks was really what was success was for me on a day-to-day basis. And how about stuff like managing stress in the sport, both like mentally and, and physically? How did you manage it? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty laid back. There's only a couple of times that I really felt emotional stress. One was wanting to back up and go to the Beijing Olympics and defend a gold medal. I was number three in the world, number one in Australia, got glandular fever and basically missed out by a couple of targets on going. And I changed my world and focused solely on shooting. I'd resigned from my fabulous career with agriculture and um, I just I moved back to Canberra and it was all about making that Beijing team. So when I didn't qualify... I was distressed. I was distraught. My hair fell out. I just, I didn't know what to do. And that's kind of when I had the epiphany of um, maybe I need more in my life. Let's start a business and move to Sydney and get ready for a deli campaign. So that was the light bulb moment there for me was um, just getting over failure. So that was the, the emotional stress. The physical stress I was cool with and I, I know about fight or flight, have a science degree and so on, and I know through my own experience, let's say zero is you're dead and 10 is where you're so hyped up and in fight mode or flight mode that you're probably pulling your pants a little and your heart rate's totally maxing out. I like to compete in that eight or nine part where you've got to be comfortable with yourself 
to have your knees knocking and the sweaty palms and hearing your heart. And it's tough to be able to be comfortable with knowing that. But I also know that it brings some magic things on, like you've got better mental focus. You can deal with the task at hand. You've got sharper reflexes. You've got better vision and acuity. And all, all those type of things come with it. So I was happy being on that teetering edge of going too far over. And that's something that I, I love. I wasn't really particularly someone who got stressed about competition. I was pretty well planned. I always had my focused action plans and my what I did the night before and what I did during competition. Very good at compartmentalising. So mental stress wasn't that big a deal. Did you always think about going into business? So now I guess we've started to go down the, the path of like the transition now. Was starting a business always kind of on the cards for you or is that something that just popped up later when you were like okay what's what's next I kind of always thought I'd have a business I suppose maybe I was quite happy working for uh, Department of Ag and you know I was hitting my my goals there so that was that was nice Um, but my family's had many and varied businesses and I've always worked in them as well so I learned how to run a business from them and that it, it could be possible it was more just that I didn't want to go back to agriculture because that was back to orange and the four-hour drive or the flights or whatever was just too tough mm-hmm. and I needed to get away from my family. Mum had recovered and I needed to get on with their things. And so I moved to Sydney and started up hitting targets and I started during the global financial crisis. That's just Great a time. crazy thing to do. Great time, but it's also stood me in good stead for COVID in that I'm one of these people that tries really hard to never owe anybody money, don't live off credit, have a business that I can just pack up and move or shut down. And that's because I started during the global financial crisis. So I've, I've come out relatively well in COVID having been locked down for four months there. So I, yeah, I always wanted to go into business in some way to be able to offer to my sponsors and that maybe days out shooting or introduce my sport to others and also a bit of coaching as well. When I was with Department of Ag, I used to also run a lot of training events there and um, everything had to be commercially done as well. So I was in control of big budgets there at times. And so businesses had always been something that I've just kind of took to. It sounds like being an entrepreneur was in your blood a little bit there. Absolutely, yeah. It does lead nicely into my next question. What skills do you think you acquired as an athlete that helps you get you where you are today, aside from the fact that hitting targets is uh, a business about teaching people how to actually shoot clay targets? I think that's a, a big component of it. Uh, look, I suppose the skills were the things like always trying to find another way to do what you want to do. So you would have found that, you know, you couldn't get on the ice today. Okay, let's make it happen tonight type thing. So that's one thing. Workarounds. So sport taught me that. Taught me to self-analyse and be critical of my performance and how things were going. So that comes over to business. You've got to, you know, check that you're not going backwards, that you're always going forwards. You've got to be accountable, yep. Accountable. Um, Being part of an individual in a team is also something interesting because I'm the boss but I have 12 casual staff and so they're my team that's around me and I still have to look after them and guide them and look after them as you would your team members even though you're an individual. So that's something that's taught me. Never to ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do either. Um, setting goals, making sure that you 
have a, a vision of what you want your business to be. And in sport, we visualize, and if we can see it, we can do it. And I think that's something about recovery as well. So after COVID, I've had to have this vision in my mind of what my, I want my business to look like and progress to. And that comes from sport, compartmentalizing, being able to go, right, I'm at work now, I'm going to give my clients 100% of my time. And I'll go shoot later or I'll go catch up with friends later. Yeah. I've got to be focused at what I'm doing. I learned not to sweat the small things. That was that was something. And I think out of all of it is I've had a really resilient career. I'm I'm tough and we all know the X factor is grit in there. And I've qualified for teams and been removed out of teams so that younger athletes could get opportunities. And so when you think of business, sometimes people are getting those tenders or those quotes or something, and you've just got to suck it up and move on and, and find something else and, and, and reformulate yourself. So sport has really taught me a lot about resilience and about grit. I think also working full-time with sport, it sounds like a few of those, like the time management, uh, compartmentalising, that's come from having a full-time job. So I don't think it's necessarily just the sport. I think it's the environment in which you had to work with in order to get to the top in your sport? Yeah, I think one interesting thing that shooting taught me was that I might be female, but I'm as good as the guys. And it also, from a young age, I was competing with old men or however old. So you kind of build a rapport. So sport definitely gave me those skills that I took into business. I was interested to know what the gender split was like in a sport like shooting. So figure skating is quite female dominated. I'd imagine shooting is quite male dominated, but that's also me making an assumption. So Yeah, hugely male dominated. So an example would be at a national championships, you've probably only got 20% of the field is female and you might have 40% across the males and females would be juniors. So it is very, very male-dominated. I'm the first national coach for the Clay Target Association that's a female. Wow. So hitting, hitting glass ceilings there. Um, so it is definitely, and it's also quite a biased sport at times. When I first started out shooting internationally, Men had four World Cups to attend a year. Women only had two. Yeah, so up until uh, just these Olympics coming, men and women have not competed on an equal footing since Barcelona. So it used to be a, a gender-neutral sport, so men and women competed against each other. There was a Chinese lady who actually won the Olympic skate in Barcelona. So they kicked out skate and they kicked out trap for women for the next for the Atlanta Olympics and they brought in double trap. So men got to still shoot skeet trap and double trap, but women could only shoot double trap. And they also shot at last list targets in the men, so they couldn't compare the score. And then we've seen over the years we saw women's double trap get removed from the Olympics before men's. And it's only just now with the Tokyo movement that says equal men, equal women, equal scores. So we've got men and women shooting the equal amount of targets and we have a mixed pairs event now. So become a very gender equal sport. Whereas I'd say the two best shooters in Australia at the moment are probably ladies. When I was shooting at my peak, I only really had Michael Diamond and Adam Bella who were above me when I was in my real heyday. So um but we never got to shoot the same amount of targets. So you just don't know. But it's nice to see things are getting a little bit more Yeah, I mean 
we're looking at a 2020. I'm, I'm quite shocked that it's taken that long. It's great that they are equal on more equal playing fields now, but yeah, I'm quite surprised it's taken so long. Only at Olympic level too. So at domestic level, where we shoot some events equally, but women are still offered cheaper nominations, cheaper entry fees because you're trying to promote women to get in there. We offer cheaper entry fees to our juniors, our women and our veterans. And I don't pay the cheaper fees because, you know, it's, it's my business. Why would I be taking money off the men when I'm competitive with them? But, yeah, we still, we still have women as a separate entity almost. How valuable do you think it is for athletes to have a plan for when they stop competing so I don't know what the average age is for a shooter to actually finish competing but yeah how valuable do you think it is for athletes in more in general oh it's hugely valuable I I think having people out there such as the athlete well-being and engagement officers that we have now it's helping athletes not just focus just on their sport because when I'm just focused on Beijing and I failed that's when I had mental stress issues when I have lots of things going on in my life, it's awesome. But I think also sport is business these days. So athletes can take the, those opportunities that they're getting offered, such as um, entry into universities, entries into other types of skills. And they'd be stupid not to be taking up any opportunities that they're getting to, to learn skills that they can take into their life afterwards. And I've loved listening to your podcast, listening to people like, you know, Jamie Dwyer and Eamon Sullivan going into business together with restaurants and all these interesting things that people do afterwards. Nova Paris Nebone going into politics and we had lives after sport and I think if we can plan for them and start thinking of them before we, we complete sport, then we'll be happier and better equipped. I think athletes really, really do need to take up any opportunities they have in upskilling or preparing themselves for the future. And that's a whole vast raft of things these days because we've got technology. I mean, people are making money just off their sport from sponsors and doing podcasts and Instagram posts and stuff like that. So it's it's a new world and, yeah, they've got a plan for it. It's a little bit off topic, but I, I went and spoke to Year 7s the other day um, about their transition into high school um, and they were going into a, like a gifted and talented program. And some of the jobs that they were saying like they wanted to go into, there was like mobile and app developers, there were YouTubers, just the amount of like variety of jobs that haven't even been created yet. I think there's just this whole world that technology's brought around that it's going to be really cool to see what that actually offers athletes as well, where they can fit into that and where they can make money post-sport as well. Mm, like they're making money from their sport now, which is, which is pretty cool. I, I typed my honours thesis up on a typewriter. I mean, where's the world now? <laughs> <laughs> what legacy do you hope to leave most as a person? I always thought, so I've, you know, failed in IVF and stuff like that. So um, I don't see myself having children of my own. And I always wanted to have kids to bring up good citizens, to be part of the community and make the community go forward. So as a coach, I'm pretty lucky. Um, like the last six years, I've worked with Australia's elite junior shooters and, you know, some of them are 12, 13, 14 years old, up to 25 and 
beyond. And I know I've left an imprint with those people on not only the way that they a technically shoot and how they think about themselves as an athlete, just not as a hillbilly shooter that does it for you know a pastime. So I think I'd like to be someone that continues to be utilised as a resource um, to try and better athletes or people to seek more and be more comfortable in seeking more. It's incredible the role that coaches play in actually shaping especially more junior people's lives. Um, I've seen it in figure skating, just talking about like mental health and their outlook on life. Um, Even if it's stuff they're not comfortable talking to their parents about, the the role a coach plays is just, it's one that you can't really compare. It's, I think it's a really important role. And I think being coachable is also another skill in itself that kids kind of develop. Um, There are so many athletes that do look up to you today. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? A business one for when I was setting up a business was my coach had said to me, Susie, try and find a business or a career that you manage from afar so that you can follow your sport. Yep. So someone else works on it. You don't have to work on it. You just make it progress. So I'm fortunate that I've been able to do that. But I think from... I, I get to hang out with, I think it's 38 Olympic gold medalists in the Gold Medal Ready program and listening to their stories and everything like that. It's, it's just awesome. But most of us at some point knew we were contenders. We weren't just competitors that went along because we were in the team or we got a tracksuit. And so my advice for any athlete is get yourself mentally, technically, physically prepared so that you know you're a contender. And that is one of the things that I would go to a shoot. I knew I knew I could make a final. It was just up to me to, to get in there. I had the skills and the ability. So I think, yeah, my advice to an athlete would be get yourself so that you are a contender. You've touched on something there that I do want to go into a little bit more detail. So two of the programs that I saw on your LinkedIn was you were part of the Gold Medal Ready program for the Australian Institute of Sport, getting athletes ready for Tokyo 2020-0-1-2, whenever it happens. Um, And then the other one is the Olympians Unleashed speaker as part of the Australian Olympic Committee, which you just touched on. So that's talking to year nines about their career and sporting goals. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, how you got into that and what that that program means to you? Unleashed program is the AOC's program where they wanted to take Olympism to to schools and I think they've been to hundreds, 500, 1,000 schools throughout Australia now. Uh, Last year I actually went to 42 schools. This year I've been doing Zoom sessions. Uh, I've got one this afternoon. I'm chatting to Mudgee High School. It's basically aimed at Year 9 kids because they're the ones that are making those decisions about their future and we're talking about what subjects they're going to take in school to set that path, whether they're going to become a TikToker or a carpenter. And so it's just telling them a bit about finding your passion in sport and unleashing it. And for me, it was, you know, I just I just love to go play target shooting and it was an individual thing. So I did hide from it at high school. I was happy to be part of the netball team and known for that or softball team. But he was me ticking away in the background winning national titles and it wasn't until way after that that I unleashed my passion for play target shooting and look where it got me. So 
this program is getting into schools and trying to tell them to think about what makes them tick, what they're good at, what they love, and plan for it. And it's pretty much like what you're doing here. You're trying to say to athletes, think about your future. And so it's just inspiring these kids to either get into sport, you know, think that they want to be a musician, a chemist, an artist, find what it is and go for it. And that's the um, Unleashed program, and it's pretty, pretty cool. I really like it. And then the other one is just, I think I'm getting way more out of it than they're getting out of me, that's for sure. It's the Gold Medal Ready program and it's a really interesting thing. When the Rio Olympics were on, there's basically 70 Australian Olympians that finished fourth to eighth. So they didn't get a medal. They were probably a finalist and quite a few of those we would have expected medals off them. And the AIS Clever Sykes interviewed those people, had a look into why why this was. A few of them were, they'd never experienced that level of physical stress before and so they kind of backed away from it, not knowing what a crazy heart rate's doing to them or their knees knocking or they want to throw up type thing. But quite a few of them were not prepared for the differences of the village compared to where they normally normally were. Also, trying to get them to focus on their, their plans, put plans in place for when they are there and so one of the things the program does is it teaches you a lot about cortisol levels and recovery. And an example would be I don't know, a hockey team. They're competing over the full two weeks, day on, day off, day on, day off. You've got to be able to recover and have that chill-out time in between and have your, your plan for the next day. So it's pretty cool. So there's gold medalists like myself and those people, I just look up to them so much. They're just amazing. And they're talking about their stories. And we're learning to become better mentors, better speakers, better questioners. So it's nice that we're coming away with those skills. And then we're also involved with anthropologists, sports psych, and the Special Forces Commandos out of Holsworthy Army Base. And pre-COVID, we were doing um, camps with potential and going to Tokyo athlete. And it was getting them into positions of stress. We were doing things like rappelling off 50-metre buildings, um, crawling through dark tunnels, going to exhaustion level, but then lots of um, teams, teamworking stuff and skill assessment and lots of stuff like that. So it's just the most brilliant program and I can't speak highly enough of it and I truly wish that I'd had something like that when I was around because it's skills that... 20 years has taught me, but we're just trying to hand it all to these athletes and say, here, have this, use it, off you go. And uh, Rosie from the AIS who set, set it up has just she's got an awesome program going. That's really exciting. That's That sounds like a lot of fun as well. <laughs> I think also with the year nine, the work you're doing with year nines, one of the things I took away when I was looking at the program was that if you can see it, you can be it. So I think as, a, as an Olympic athlete, they probably haven't been exposed to a lot of Olympic athletes. I don't think it's common for kids to actually be exposed to people that are the top in their level and the best in their sport. I think actually seeing people and being like, okay, I've met one. I know for talking to Nova, she was the same. She was like, when I, when I met the, the women going to the 1988 Olympics, it was like rubbing shoulders with them. You're like, oh, maybe I could do that. I think that's one of the really cool things to come out of that, um, that program. I have one last question for you, and it's something that I ask all the guests. So what's next? Gosh, so post-COVID, it's just do what I do but better. So 
I kind of let hitting targets go for the last six years that I was the national coach for for the association. Um, so now coming back to working on my business, not just in it, doing those things I get so much reward out of, like the gold medal ready and the Unleashed program. And one day, maybe one day, I keep thinking, gosh, it's so cool, um, I would start up a charity for um, IVF basically. So 10 years ago, I, there wasn't technology around for me to store eggs. Yep. And then now we have those technologies and, yet yeah, we still want women to be sports sports people, we want them to be business people and so on, and there's not always that time in their 30s that they want to do it. Yeah. So it, I, it's just an odd little bee that I have in my bonnet that I'm, I might start up a charity. I already am an ambassador, a community ambassador for the National Breast Cancer Foundation, and um, so I have a big charity event coming up with that. So do what I do better and just keep dreaming of goals and visualising what I think my future could be. I've seen people that have really struggled, whether that's in the process of IVF or later down the track with like stillborns and stuff like that. I think it's hugely common for women, yet it's not spoken about enough about. It's, yeah, so many people are affected by it. I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for your time today, Susie. I, I do really appreciate you taking the time out. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to hear more, uh, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and go and hit subscribe or follow, whichever one pops up first. But any of your your support in following and subscribing would really mean a lot to me. So thank you all for listening and I will see you next week. <laughs>